0: Well, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Timothy, chapter 1, which is page 842 in the Church Bibles. And in just a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse 8. So that's 2 Timothy 1, and verse 8. While you're turning there, I I do hope everyone had a terrific Christmas. We were praying to that end, and um, we trust that God was doing those things. I think some of you are probably still doing your Christmases and good for you. And I pray that your Christmas gifts openings and the meals and all those things, and even as we enter into the new year, because we won't see each other, will we? No, we won't until next year. So um, we're praying that your Christmas, excuse me, your New Year's will be terrific as well. So if you don't know, my name is Joe Franzone and I serve here as the pastor. And when we're done, if you have a question... About Jesus or anything that's taken place, please, please look for me and we, and we'll talk. This is a good way to end the year. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray together, please, as we seek the help that we need. Well, Father, we do... Together, thank you so much for this Christmas holiday that we enjoyed and that many of us are still enjoying. We thank you for your provision of food and the gifts and the time of rest and the homes that we were able to uh, gather together with, with the people that we love so deeply, God. And we know all those things came from you, so we want to acknowledge that before you and to tell you so much that we are grateful and humbled by what you did. And so now, as we look to these verses together, we pray that you will show us who we are and what we are before you and your holiness and your majesty. We ask that you would soften our hearts, expand our minds by your grace, that you would bring us into a saving and growing relationship with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be genuinely thankful and to be genuinely amazed at such a gift that we will learn about today, maybe for some of us the first time. So help us, God, please, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, when Paul, the writer of this letter, encouraged Timothy, the the pastor who was the recipient of the letter, to join him in his suffering for the gospel. Uh, We know right up front that Paul said that because um, there's this great potential to suffer in the gospel. And also, verse 8, there's great potential to be ashamed of the gospel. And so what Paul did was he left no question to Timothy about what the gospel is. And you can see in just a few verses, we read very clearly what the gospel actually means And in this, Paul declares a gospel which is not vague in any way. So he's declaring a gospel that is not unclear in its meaning and not uncertain in its power and what it has done. And he declares this gospel then which um, may not and cannot be changed to suit our circumstance. So that's the great burden sometimes. We take out what we like about the gospel and add, um, or we don't like, excuse me, of in the gospel, and we add bits and pieces of what we would like And as Augustine said, if we do that, um, it's not the gospel that we believe in, but it's ourselves. So he declares a gospel that does not lower its standard. He just declares a gospel that magnifies grace. So in relationship to Christmas, um, one, you cannot disattach Christmas to Easter. And two, yes, there are many different ways people can say what Christmas means to them, but the Bible tells us exactly what Christmas means. So what Paul is doing here is reminding Timothy, the pastor, of the great wonder of salvation, a testimony, again, verse 8, if your Bible's open, that Timothy ought not to be ashamed of. And it's vital, especially in our day, that the Christian understands that the gospel is much more than just some general word of comfort. And what I mean by this is too often sometimes people speak of the gospel in a vague way, a cultural way. For example, uh, don't worry about things. God is love and Jesus is love and things will work out one way or another. So don't worry, be happy. In essence, that's what they're saying. Don't worry about anything, be happy. Keep plotting the way that you're plotting. Don't worry, be happy. Well, what I want to say to you is that martyrs were not hunted down and murdered for that kind of thing. Christians were not and are not persecuted now or in the past because they told people God's love, things will be fine, so don't worry, be happy. Jesus did not hang to his death on a cross for don't worry, be happy. Because the gospel is much more comprehensive than that. It dramatically changes how we view life, how we understand life, and how we live life. Oftentimes, when pastors get together, and even sometimes elders thinking about leaders or future leaders in in the church, oftentimes the first question that is asked is, "Is he a gospel man? Is he a, or is she a gospel lady?" So we're not asking, "Are they smart? Are they energetic? Do they show up to stuff a lot?" I mean, those things might or might not have significance, but the real question is, "Is he a gospel man? Is she a gospel lady?" And what we're really saying is, does their understanding of the gospel frame the way in which they serve in ministry and frame the way in which they live out their life? Because the gospel not only encompasses the way in which we live life, but the gospel answers all the great questions about why it is we even have life. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, It is the gospel that gives the ultimate answer to where did our world come from? Someone who doesn't believe the gospel might say, I don't know where, where, where the world came from. And they would be agnostic. And someone might say, well, I think that the world is some kind of cosmic accident. and They might be an idiot. But, but the gospel man or woman says, no, the world came about as a res- result of God speaking the world into existence. That God spoke, and the world as we have it, and the world around us, was made. Equally, the gospel tells us how God made men and women in this world. And more importantly, the gospel tells us why God made men and women in the world. Now, you might not like this, but I'm going to quote from Shakespeare. It's been way too long, probably, since you've heard a quote from Shakespeare. This is Shakespeare's play Hamlet, uh, Act 4, Scene 4. And listen to what he says What good is a man if his chief good and action of his time be but to sleep and feed? He is a beast and no more. You, you understand what he's saying? If all humanity is to do is to, is to exist. So we get up and we eat a bit and we work a bit and we play a bit and we read a bit and we exercise a bit and we go to bed and we do it all over again the next day and we keep doing it until we die. If that is all there is to life, what a horrible way to live. What, a, what an empty way to live. But the gospel changes that perspective. The gospel tells us that God made men and women to enjoy a relationship with himself and that the purpose of men and the purpose of women is to enjoy that relationship and to involve ourselves in that relationship. And the gospel also tells us what's gone wrong with men and women in a way the world has never been able to answer correctly. Now, again, think with me. We are going to be, just a few days now, uh, soon 16 years removed from the bloodiest century in the history of the world, the 20th century. This is the same century that brought us advancement in technology, food production, transportation, medicines, and general well-being, which practically speaking ought to have ushered in an era of world peace. It did not do that. It just ushered in death. Now, how did that happen? If you read your newspapers this past week... There's so much in there which simply saying is, this is humanity. Things are really messed up. Things aren't good. People are angry. People are jealous. People are making weird choices. People hate each other. People steal from one another. A couple of weeks ago, I read in the New York Times that part of the reason why the consumer has to pay more for uh, their products that they purchase is because of theft. Somewhere between 4 to 8% price increase because people steal from each other. Why does man steal from man? Why? Well, because man is dishonest. And society asks, why is man dishonest? And society may answer, it's because we had bad parents. Or it's because we had a bad start in life. Or it's because we had a bad location in life. Or because we need more education in life. But the gospel answers this question with absolute clarity and with absolute honesty. Why are we the way that we are? Why? The Bible says men and women are rebels. They're against God. They've turned their back on God and they've chosen to rule themselves. They've chosen to be like God and and call their own shots. And men and women, when they think about how to unscramble the uncertainties of our life and how to deal with the sense of things are not right and things need to get better, When humanity has those thoughts, typically we begin with ourselves. Now, I want you to understand this. When men and women begin to think things are not so good and they want them to get better, we will always begin with ourselves. Always begin with ourselves. So we try to understand our roots. So we try to understand where we came from. We, we may take on, if you would, a new exercise regime. We may look for a new mate, a new job, a new place, a new circumstance, and new people, and so on. But after the initial newness, buzz, wears off, we return to confusion and sadness and emptiness and misery. Why? Well, because we always begin with ourselves. But the Bible and the gospel always begins with god genesis 1:1 1, 1, in the beginning god that's creation john chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the word that is redemption so you see the bible doesn't argue about the existence of god philosophers do that and that's fine they help a bit but usually they help just the home team but what the bible says is very plain listen to your bible romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 Since what may be known about God is plain to humanity, because God has made it plain to humanity, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So what Paul is saying is everybody knows in varying degrees there's a God and that he exists. So the current thoughts of secular man and their indifference to God, they're not self-evident because that's how it usually comes to us. It ought to be obvious there's no God. There ought to be obvious there's no um, Christian truth. Indifference to God is learned. That's what the Bible says. And it is suppressed by ignoring what is self-evident. God made himself clear enough. He made the world good enough. But again, the Bible explains men and women have rebelled against God and as a result, have brought chaos and sin upon themselves. So I say all that by way of introduction, because when we come to that little phrase in verse 9, and I hope your Bible's open, you'll see that, who saved us, the God who saved us, okay, then the introduction may make some say, well, okay, well, God would have to save us, because there's no way in the world that after he said all that stuff, if it's true that we could save ourselves otherwise. However, another person might ask the question, I think it's a good question, well, you know what? Why do I need to be saved? Because I don't think I need to be saved. I think I need to be helped. I think I need guidance. I need to find myself. I need money. I need to feel better. But the Bible says, no, no, you need to be saved because you're fallen. The guilt of sin and our rejection of God's law, that's upon us, The power of sin holds us, the pollution of sin marks us so much so that the Bible says even our holy and most righteous acts, if you would, have the dirt of sin all over them. So if that's our predicament, then wonder upon wonder, when you read the Bible, how great is it that God is in the business of saving people? And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's reminding Timothy and he's rejoicing in the fact that one, we have a gospel to proclaim. And he tells Timothy, Timothy, don't be ashamed of Jesus because there's a potential for that. And Timothy, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, because there's a potential for that. And Timothy, remember, verse nine, God saved us. In other words, what Paul is saying is that God did in Christ what we could not do. There's there's a flat translation to Psalm one. One hundred, which is a, a creation psalm, and it says, without our aid, he did us make. Right? Without our aid, God did us make. In other words, okay, we didn't make ourselves, and so Paul would add to that, you know what? You can't even save yourselves because it's only God who saves. So we go back to the basics. The word of God and salvation is such that God, in gospel proclamation, wakes up a dead sinner and he saves that sinner by His grace. And He saves them from what? The penalty of sin, which is a valid penalty because we've broken God's law and if undealt with, will send us right into eternal punishment. And God saves us from the presence of sin one day in God's heaven. And that's the one who saved us. That's God. Second phrase, then, you'll see this there. Also, He's the one who's called us to a holy life. In other words, God has saved us from the power of sin in such a way that sin no longer reigns over those whom God has saved. Before God saved, sin reigned in us. We could not fight back. We were slaves to sin. After God saved, he called us to a holy life. Sin no longer reigns, but sin still remains in our life. But he has called us to a holy life. God is holy. Those he saved are to be holy. The Bible is very clear on this. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God which saved you has appeared. It teaches us, it trains us to say no. Okay, to what? To ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait. Okay, so grace teaches us and grace gives us patience to wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from our wickedness and to purify himself with people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. In other words, to purify us for holiness. So this is what I want you to see. I want you to see how far more comprehensive salvation is than just, okay, get saved and then whatever. That's not how God saves. In fact, try that in a marriage. Get married and then whatever. Whatever. Have a baby, and then whatever. Get hired, and on your first day of your job, say, whatever. Therefore, implied in gospel salvation by grace is this tying together. There's justification, yes. There's sanctification, yes. When God saves, there's adoption, there's redemption, and glorification, and on and on. These This is grace. This is grace. Grace ties together all those things in the work of God in our salvation. So, When God reaches down into a life and he saves it, this is what he does. Now listen carefully. He gives us completely new status as his children. We are children of God. He gives us a completely new nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. He removes us from the place of condemnation to the position of justification. He puts the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to conform us into the very image of Jesus Christ. He opens up full tilt the channels of communication with his children so that no one need to stand in line and wait to be heard and accepted by God. Now, do you understand that? No Christian need to wonder if they are actually being heard and if they're actually being accepted when they pray to God. Because if God has saved you and if God has called you to a holy life, then you can be assured that we are heard and we are accepted. And, and loved ones, there's no extra hoops that we need to jump through. There's no extra classes that we need to take to enjoy all those privileges. And if that wasn't terrific enough, God, in our salvation, day one, puts the assurance of the Holy Spirit into our very psyche so that we know ourselves redeemed people who are waiting for the day, not in terror and not in angst, but waiting for that day past our death when we shall see Him, 1 John 3 2, and be like Him. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel does. That is the comprehensive work of God in our salvation. This is what it means to be saved, to be forgiven, to be converted, to belong to God. This is the nature of our salvation. And and if you're still listening, and I don't think I'm misspeaking when I say this, isn't grace amazing? Isn't grace amazing? You don't need to buy any extra books. You don't need to get any classes. You just enjoy the privileges of grace. Become part of the family of God. It's good. I was thinking about the whole thing about prayer. Maybe some of you can throw away half your prayer books that tell you how to pray and how to get closer to God. You can't get any closer to God than what Jesus has done by his suffering and death on the cross. Ephesians 1 and 2. You can read it for later. Okay. This is is lavishness. He called us. He saved us. Number three, no work from us. Isn't that what Paul says? So Paul is saying this saving and calling is not because of anything we've done. You see that in your Bible. It's not because of our works. So, so Paul rules out the very notion that could be easily found in the average religious person. Because the average religious person approaches Jesus and Christianity usually like this. Now, now stay with me. They'll say something like, I, have, I haven't had any interest in Jesus or the Bible in a very long time. But I'm not getting any younger. The kids aren't getting any uh, kids are getting older, and they all need religious training, and I need to feel better about myself, so suddenly I'm interested. And so if they're interested in religion and begin to engage in it, their lines of thinking then will usually go like this. I feel so much better about myself since I decided to stop doing X and start doing Y and fill in the blank, whatever it is. I feel better about myself since I stopped losing my temper and showed everyone much more patience. I feel better about myself now that I've stopped all that stuff and whatever that stuff is and now I'm not doing that stuff but I'm doing good religious things and if that's the case I can pretty well promise you that that person doesn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and he doesn't understand grace because what they're doing is they're viewing their salvation they're viewing their relationship with God as if it were an achievement. Or, as if it were a reward as a result of 2 Timothy 1 9, something they have decided to do. Right? So they finally take more initiative. They finally turn over a new leaf. They finally pull themselves together. And presto, uh, James Brown, they feel good. Work, 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 work. All those things are potentially good things. We understand that. But none of those things have the power to save. It's the power of God that saves. It's a good start, but it's on the wrong trail. Okay, but what about the average religious Christian who only feels better about themselves and only feel good with God when they've done more Christian stuff? So I feel a lot better now because I pray more, I read my Bible more, I do more service, I do more giving. Oh gosh, I feel so much better. Now, don't misunderstand me. Obedience is our pursuit. We learn that. God has called us. And obedience has its rewards. But what happens when you and I don't obey? And what happens when you and I will not obey? Or worse, what a pain in the neck we could be when we're doing all those things and we begin to boast about them to others. True? But if I stand in grace, if the best thought in my mind is, oh, how the grace of God amazes me, and if I relate to God, quoting John Owen, not on the basis of my personal performance, but only on the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ, if that's where I start, then everything changes. And my view of others will change. Because one, I'll stop rating people, and two, I'll stop rating myself. This is what Paul said, Philippians 3 3. He said, We who serve God by a spirit who, who boast in Christ Jesus, And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. You hear what he's saying? This is what it means to live as a Christian. We only boast in what Jesus has done. And we only put all our confidence in what Jesus has done. And not what we will do. Or can do. Or want to do. I don't know if you know who John Grisham is. He lived in the 20th century. I think he died in 1954. On the night that he died, he sent a telegram to his friend. His final line in the telegram read this, read this, these words. And by the way, he was a pastor and a theologian. He said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. <laughs> no hope without him. It's good. So thankful for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. No hope without him. So we have to realize the comprehensive nature of our salvation. God saves, he justifies, he sanctifies, he adopts, not because of our works, not because of our activities, but you see it there in verse 9b, but because of God's own purpose, his own purpose and grace. And by the way, the word purpose in the Greek has the idea of a sacred plan. So this is a solemn, sacred thing God did when he saved us. Your salvation was carefully thought out and carefully planned out by God. So again, I'm going to say to you, if a person talks about themselves and the changes they've made and plan on making and and how they're fixed and are never going back, if a person leads with himself, then it's more than likely that their salvation is something they have done or they're beginning to do. And if, if they have done that, um, then God will accept me. And they make a hash out of the gospel. Romans 10, they try to establish their own standard of righteousness and ignore God's saving plan. Again, a quote. The gospel is a message of what God has done for us, not what we do for God. So when the person understands that it's only account of Jesus and only account of God's grace and his unmerited goodness and that he grants righteousness and he grants sanctification and he gives power to live a new life, then they'll do all those good deeds not to be accepted, but because we are accepted. And there's all the difference in the world in the two. So just think, think of it like this. I do not clean the house to make my wife love me. I clean the house because she does love me. So there's no works, there's no achievement, there's no reward. I clean the thing because I love her, not to make her love me and certainly not to make her love me more. And that's what Paul is saying. He saved us and he called us to a holy life, not because of anything we'd done. And Paul was the master of works before he met Jesus Christ. He was Mr. Works on steroids, I mean, that was the melody line of Paul's life until what happened? Until he met Jesus. Well, was he trying to meet, meet Jesus? No, he was not trying to meet, meet Jesus. If you know the story, he was running away from Jesus and Jesus got right in front of him by his grace and said, Paul, Paul, why do you kick against the goads? And salvation came down by God's grace. And he knew that the cross meant something. And he knew that the man on the cross was his master forever and that his standing Before God was secured by God's purpose, and by God's grace. And how fantastic is it to understand that God's attention to save his people predates time. Isn't that the end there, verse 9? This grace was given in Jesus before the beginning of time. In other words, there's a prequel to Christmas, right? How long have you loved me, God? Well, I knew I loved you before you met me in Christ. In other words, again, I've loved you forever. So when the Christian wants to think, and they trace the river of God's grace back to its source, they find that love in eternity itself. Uh, Charles Spurgeon called this the fatness of God's grace. Isn't that a good line? The fatness of God's grace. It's not just now, it's before there was a now, God's grace was coming down on us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. The fatness of God's grace. and When we comprehend that and let it get to the heart and mind, this brings stability, but it also brings Humility. James G. Small was a pastor and he was a hymn writer. He wrote, I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me before I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart, so closely twined those ties which never can sever. For I am his, and he is mine, forever and forever. Let me give you another hymn. This is from a pastor who lived in Africa in the middle of the 20th century. Same mind, contemplating the same thing. Oh, how the grace of God amazes me, illusions me from my bonds and sets me free. What made it happen so? His own will, this much I know, set me now as I now show at liberty. So you have a Scottish pastor as a Presbyterian. You have an African, Ameri- or African pastor as a Baptist, separated by many, many miles, writing about the same grace of God. Again, separated by miles, and yet united in eternity because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus in the gospel, which was given to them, this grace was given to them before they came from their mother's womb. Now, now, how fantastic is that? How could anyone understand salvation and ever be anything but at least super grateful and very humble? I mean, how can you understand the sheer magnitude of this and ever look down on others who as of yet have not turned to Jesus Christ and repentance and faith? How could we? How can anyone not have moments, some moments, I'll call them a divine heart attack, where your heart is just leaping for joy, being lost in such love from God? Grace, before there was me, love me, before there was me, how does that happen? I don't know, but it happened. Okay, parents, will you forgive me for a second? I was thinking about my wife. And I was thinking how I didn't do what many Christian experts say to do. They always tell you, pray super hard for your future wife. I did not do that. And make a, make a list of what you want and need in your future wife. I did not do that. And then you pray and you pass out that list and you pray and you give a list to people and you tell them to pray and then you pray and then you pray. Now, I'm not saying that's not good. Of course it's good course it's good but in my case i really didn't do any of that and there she was just a walking down the street now listen carefully if it was by my works then i have something to boast about maybe i have a book you know 10 keys to premarital engagement jesus's way but if it was by god's mercy Then personally, I do not have something to boast about, but I do have someone to boast about. And there is a huge, huge difference. God saves, he calls to holiness, he gave us Christ, he loved us before we met him. Okay final Sunday of 2015. Just plunge yourself into this mystery. Drink deep into the mystery and the immensity of God's love for us, right? Before we were us, as a result of what Christ has done because of us, sin, planned before there was time or space or any of us, God saved us. Our Christian heritage is rich. It is fixed. So listen carefully. Don't feel incredibly bad are sad when earthly things do not go the way you had hoped, and don't relate to God when earthly things do not go the way that you hope, because we are a people of a far greater hope than that. If this is all there is, if this is it. We are to be pitied. Final point: You see it in verse ten. He appeared for us. This is the Christmas verse, but. It has been revealed. The gospel has been revealed. All that God's done has been revealed through the appearing. And that word is the Greek word epiphania, which we get our word epiphany. Uh, The epiphany, the appearing, the manifestation, the glorious display of our Savior Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And so historically, this verse 10 has been the epiphany verse for the church. This is when the Magi came and gave those gifts to Jesus to point to people that Jesus is God, that he is king, and that he's going to die for sin. This is the epiphany. This is the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing is affirming what the Bible teaches, that in the person of Christ, God entered time. He appeared, and he brought all that invisible mystery about loving us before we were created, and he put it in a person. He brought a visible salvation. And in that appearing, look at your Bibles. What did Jesus do? He destroyed death. He made death ineffective. He nullified death. He demolished death. He brought it to nothing. Nothing. Jesus defeated death. And Jesus says to all of us here, will you trust me with your death? I can get you through it. I can get you through it. I'm the only one that can get through it. So we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead to God's righteousness. We're going to be dead. <laughs> so how does a dead person save themselves? They can't. But Jesus in his appearing, in his epiphany, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And this is perfect. This is, we're going to close. Just think of Jesus having this divine, huge flashlight. And the gospel is preached. And Jesus Christ appears. And God, by his own purpose and by his own grace, shines a light on the fact that um, life, psh, this is how you live in, in, in grace. Isn't that what he said in verse 10? He brought life to appearance. Our only boast is in Jesus Christ. That's the life that we live. And he brought immortality to light. You and I are going to live forever. Okay? In two places. With God in his heaven or apart from God in what the Bible describes as hell. And the light of Jesus Christ, Christ and the light of the gospel shines at. It says, there it is. There it is, when the gospel's preached. There you have it. Those are your choices. Those are your choices. Now just think with me as we close. 2016, if we make it, it could be the year in which we get the worst medical news in our life. It could be. It could be for me. So don't I need to know? That this grace that was given to me in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but was appearing, but has appeared through the appearance of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, don't I need to know that? You bet I need to know that. Don Carson has a book, Dying Well. Let will just give you a quote and then we'll be done. If you're a Christian who has thought about these things in advance death, you will recognize that this sentence of death is no different in kind from what you and your spouse have lived under all your life, that you have been preparing for this day since your conversion, that you have already laid up treasures in heaven and your heart is there. We are all under the sentence of death. We are all terminal cases. The only additional factor is that in the case, in this case, the sentence barring a miracle, will certainly be carried out sooner than you had anticipated. I'm not pretending that this bare truth is immensely comforting. Our comfort turns on other factors. But full acceptance of this truth can remove a fair fair bit of unnecessary shock and rebellion, for we will have escaped the modern Western mindset that refuses to look at death, to plan for death, to live in the light of death, to expect death. I mean, all those things are true. For the believer, the time of death becomes far less daunting, a factor when seen in the light of eternity. Although death remains an enemy, an outrage, a sign of judgment, a reminder of sin, and a formidable opponent, it is, from another perspective, the portal through which we pass to consummated life. We pass through death, and death dies. And the more a Christian lives in the consciousness of God's presence here, The easier it is to anticipate the unqualified delight that will be experienced in God's presence over there. Now, beloved, who did all that? Who put an end to death? Jesus. By his appearing, by his dying, by his resurrection. And by his return, this is good news. Let's pray together. Oh Father, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ may it be something that we can fully, more completely understand in the coming year. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. May that grace amaze us, may we cherish it, may we embrace it, may we let you lavish us in the goodness of it, and may we be humbled by such a gift and by such a mercy. And please, as the the year runs its course, don't let us base all our thoughts about you on what we have or what we don't have. How good life seems to be or how how difficult life seems to be. Help us to base our life on the wonder of grace that appeared in Christ. That put us with him on that cross so that we could die to sin and live for righteousness. Set our minds right. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both today and forevermore. Amen.